Welcome to The Impostress. The Impostress is hosted by me, Michael Knox, and Graham Drew, two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower, if you let it. So then someone I, I knew said that their favourite was Hulk Hogan, but I just kind of wondered, Graham, who's your favourite wrestler? Favourite wrestler? Yeah. Well, as in, like, WWE. Yeah, do you have a favourite wrestler? Like, if you had, if you had to have a, a wrestling doll toy, who would it be? I think it is going to age me, but I think it would be The Undertaker. The, un- the Undertaker. <laughs> the Undertaker. Is that really a wrestler? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he would take things from under. No, he was like a... Big tall dude with a hat. Who's your favourite? I don't know if I I don't know if I do have a favourite wrestler. Who was the guy who wore a cowboy hat? He had a cowboy hat. Oh, junkyard dog. I like the junkyard dog. Is that, that was like some weird niche Australian thing that you saw in the back garden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant and the junkyard dog. Anyway, I, I thought that um, maybe today's episode is a bit like a tag team wrestling thing. Oh, because there's been some thorny issues I've been wrestling with. <laughs> One of them's AI. <laughs> yeah. So first up for our listener, um, I have a chat to um Steve Sammartino and Tommy McCubbin about all things imposterous. And then you, Graham, come in off the turnbuckle. Yeah, no, because there was it was all over the newspapers. Newspapers, socials, digital, it was everywhere about um that AI that became sentient and um Bizarrely, we've spoke to some people that actually know about that kind of thing, and it was good. It's really interesting. And we talked about wet code, which is something which everyone should aspire to dropping into conversation. Or to be. They that. are actually that, as we find out. They are wet code. As we will find If anything, just find out what it is. That could be I a wrestler. Anything. Wet code. In many ways, it's like wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just get to the episodes. We're back now. We're back. There he is. In the well, flesh. It, it creates yeah. an interesting intro. We're here now, hey. Mommy's used to it. <laughs> Making shit out anyway. I'm a cook. Steve, I'm Andrew. Andrew, nice I love you. you, your hair and your surfboard. They're three things that I love already. <laughs> no, I'm serious. They need to know about that board. Both are very strong, aren't they? Those words are strong. I, I like that. I'm just, I'm just going to start. That's how this is going to Great. Happen. Okay. So welcome back to uh, The Imposterous. Today, The Imposterous is joined by Tommy McCubbin, that's two M's, two C's, two V's, and Steve Sammartino, which is two S's, two A's, two E's and two M's. <laughs> Both of them rather indulgent on the overuse of um, the consonants, but that's okay. Technology, economic technologists, entrepreneurs, authors, podcast hosts. I'm a big fan of, um, we were just talking about it before, now, soon, later, future sandwich eaters, futurists, and future Logie winners without putting them there on. There you go. Welcome um, to the imposterous. Logie winner. Love. Yeah. Thanks for <laughs> calling it here. I love that. 
um, host of Rebound, and we'll talk a bit about that. Um, I was thinking about this, and I think that I may have played a role in Tommy's first job in advertising, maybe, and Sam's last job in advertising. You <laughs> <laughs> did. So I'm thinking of myself as a bookmark um, or a bookend. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure which, but let's get into these questions. As you know, on the Impostors, we want to dig a little bit on the dark side of the street when it comes to um, feelings about being creative. And I wanted to ask you both about the things that you learn in advertising agencies, in creative departments, in any departments that take you um, on to what you do next. And I'm interested um, from you both in the lessons that you've learned from potentially being in the wrong place and what that teaches you about yourself. Noxie, you've just tapped into a story I don't think I've shared with you about um, Singleton Ogilvy. That first gig, this is legit. So being in the wrong place, I had a two-week internship over a summer in my third year at RMIT with you. Remember Pat Langton and I, and we sat in the big corner office and you guys came in and said, how the, did you guys get this office? And it came to the Friday night drinks. Remember we used to go up into that little loft yeah. and we'd drink up there and Pat and I looked at each other and we said, no one's saying goodbye. No one's saying, well done, we really enjoyed it. We said, stuff it, let's just show up on Monday and see what happens. And sure enough, we came back on the Monday and I think you and Frank came in and said, what are you blokes doing here? <laughs> and we said, we're here. And you said, well done. I love it. Here's another brief. And we stuck around for six months. Very good. And I love that. That's Costanza style. Just yeah. show up. That's right. It is Costanza style. Anyway, and so we ended up sticking around for at least six, 12 months, I think, as the junior juniors. Um, and RMIT said, you'll learn more there than you will in our classroom. Go for it. So thank you. You gave me the kickstart. Great. You're welcome. Good to have you on today. So that's my story about being in the wrong place. Well, that's what I but I, I, um, I was in the wrong place, I think, for the first 13 years of my career. I remember, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I did marketing at university and I, I kind of did marketing thinking more about the creative side of it and the advertising side. I did economics and marketing at uni. I, mean, I actually mentioned economics as well. It's like, what do you do? Become an economist. So you don't do that. So I got like a marketing graduate position. I remember the very first day I was there from like eight in the morning to five at night. I go, gee, this is long hours. I, I remember driving home the first night going, gee, I don't know if I like this very much. So I thought I'll just stick it out for 13 years, see how it goes. It might get better. <laughs> it might get better. And, and it was just spreadsheet world. Like it was just so formulaic. It's like the factory makes this. This is the packaging. These are the consumers. Here's where it goes on the shelf. Here's the range of pricing. Here's, it was like you, you may as well have just, it was just like a recipe, a recipe for unhappiness as well, as well as a recipe for uh, consumer goods marketing. And I, I really didn't like it for like decades. And I just did it because it was a little bit, well, you went to uni and then you get a good corporate job and there's a big corporate brand name like Procter & Gamble and that's a yeah. good place to be. So even if you had it, you should stay there. So it took me a really long time to get the courage to just go, I'm over this, I'm done on this. So, And I want to ask you, Tommy, then about a creative director's frustration that can come from not seeing ideas made and how this might have made you realise um, that the right direction for you was to go another way. Because that takes guts, right? That takes some self-belief to say, I'm going somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. I think it was it was kind of there was a gravity pulling me in that direction. I think in your 20s working at an agency is the best 
environment to be in. There's cold beer in the fridge. There's gorgeous people wanting to to party all weekend, and it's just it was a really great great environment to be in. But I think as you get into your 30s and now I've just turned over 40 and you've got a young family, I just found the creative agency was like, oh, my goodness, I can't I can't do both well. Where else can my ideas live? So I'm still taking a brief from a consultancy point of view. But I think the self-belief is a constant struggle. It's not like I've conquered that um, at all. But one thing Samma really and I hammer home and Samma taught me this is, is frequency is the only real remedy for uh, coming up with great ideas. I think that if you can get into the habit of reps, and I'll get Sam to tell you about the batting 300 story, but reps is the, the key for me. I think it's kind of, it's just like getting fit. And I think that the more you can think and share your ideas, the thicker the skin and the more likely you are to nail one. Try and tell the batting 300 anecdote, which we stick on a poster every time we're in Struggle Town. Yeah, we do. And we send each other little texts with 300 and a baseball bat. So the idea is that uh, the world's best baseball players, if you're batting 300, uh, you, you'd be paid, you know, inordinate amounts of millions of dollars. To, to bat 300 means that you hit a ball, you make a run, like a single run, three times out of 10. And that's how you earn millions and millions of dollars. But we have in our mind that perfection is what we should aim for when we should just swing as many times as we can because if you have volume, quality will find its way in there. If you're just looking for quality, you don't get it. And even in sales and pitch, you know, pitching is sales, advertising is sales. We're all trying to sell our ideas. Um, an average salesperson gets one out of 10. A good salesperson will get two out of 10. A, a world better is three out of 10. So you've got to be able to swallow failing seven times out of 10. So every time something doesn't work, I go, oh, that's one of the seven that's I've got that out right. of the way now. Yeah. So we say batting 300, which is common parlance in baseball. And I heard you talk about um, the, the penny dropped for you when you realised that maybe corporate cultures are good at showing you your weaknesses, but there's weaknesses chats. That, that happen in, in mm. feedback, um, but the real power is like an awareness or a focus. How have things changed since you've stepped out of the corporate world in your focus and awareness of what you're good at? It was funny. I, I, when I was working with you at, at Gray and doing stuff with WPP, that's when I realised you go through life from high school, primary school, you've got to work on your weakness, you're weak at maths, you're great at speaking or writing and you're weak at this or you're good at science or you're good at sport but you're weak at that. And society gets you to work on your weaknesses. That is terrible advice. We have a world where we uh, divide labour up into what people are good at. At Gray, when I was working with you and Luke, I, I realised that I was really good at pitching. I, I had no yeah. idea until then. And I remember I'd, we'd nail some pitches and for whatever reason, we wouldn't get the work because of the political machinations and they had someone who was in the other agency. And I actually said to myself, what if, what if I didn't think about my weaknesses and just focus on this one thing that I'm good, which is standing on my feet and sharing ideas. And that's when I went, oh, maybe I can public speak. I can just do that. Like just do that 10% thing that I nail. Yeah. And usually in a job that you've got, there's 10% of it that you absolutely know. Like that's the bit that people come to you. You're the, you're the go-to person. I reckon if you can turn that into your job or your career, that 10% strength and just outsource or ignore your weaknesses, I reckon that's, that's where the goodness lies. Yeah, great. I want to ask you both something else because, as you know, I um, send a lot of fan mail to Future Sandwich, Tom's <laughs> podcast, which any listeners who are looking for a podcast beyond the imposter should get on Future Sandwich. 
Thanks, um, And I hang around the rebound car park because I want to ask you both this question, <laughs> but you're too busy. Um, this pandemic has obviously taught us something that I know Sam is very passionate about, which is the work from anywhere. What do you think the next pandemic will teach us? Um, well, I reckon I'm, I'm an optimist, but I feel like this pandemic was a bit of a warning shot to humanity. I think that it kind of was the circuit breaker we, we needed. I think us as the apex species, we take that for granted on this planet, and I feel like the pandemic just gave us a nice jolt. Um, so I reckon the next pandemic will just double down on humanity over economy. I think that's kind of the that's the big thing that I got out of it. Everyone's sort of looked around at their family and their community and and really said, look, we're all quite vulnerable here. And it was a good, it was a good test. Certainly Victorians had it worse than anyone else. So I feel like we came out of it. Um we I I've I can notice around my neighborhood. My all my neighbors are were much closer. The local cafe really is a kind of a uh, the epicenter of my community and these sorts of weird things that came out of it. And I couldn't, I, I think that from a personal level, that's what I got out of it is, is, is it's now about humanity over economy. Yeah. I mean, that, that it, for me, that it, it broke bad habits, like just driving to the office because we did. <laughs> and we did that because computers were expensive and no one had them at home. So we just kept doing it, even though we had another option. But I'll just go on a little bit of a tangent here. I think the next virus will teach us. And I, instead of pandemic, I'll use the word virus. Yeah. Will teach us a, 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 another set of lessons. And that virus, let's let's imagine it's a global AI-driven computer virus. No one knows where it came from or how to fix it. And that'll teach us that you can't have everything digital. Now, you know, as a futurist and someone who loves technology, I think that we need to have analog capabilities in everything because if everything is digitised and you don't have an off switch, you actually can't make things work. If we had a global uh, internet virus that no one could fix or solve. You'd be able to go outside, but nothing would work. And I think that we need to have things that are analog as well as digital. And I think that the move towards an all digital economy where everything has to have something inside a black box to make it work, I think that's foolish. Right. So I'm going to go somewhere else then with my questions about <laughs> you have a belief in the seeds of greatness, and we're not a we're not a. This isn't the the money program if that still exists. Um, <laughs> This idea, and I want to connect it to confidence because you you have this belief of putting money aside for your future shows that you have a belief in yourself. And this podcast that we want to talk about is about that, is about getting confidence. How do, how do they connect? How does this idea of saving money, being the seat of greatness, help you kind of be confident? It's really interesting because money isn't the thing. Money actually is time and opportunity. And only if you'll put something aside are you saying, I'm worth investing in. You actually, it's an investment in yourself. It's not about the return. It's the fact that you've got it there in case you have an unknown trajectory that life takes. Or you've kind of saying, I've, I've put something aside for myself so that when that opportunity arrives, I don't have an excuse. I actually have to take it. And it's actually, it really does build confidence. It says I'm capable of doing something. I'm actually capable of making a short-term sacrifice for the long-term long -term good. But it actually, putting money aside is actually investment in yourself. And in investment circles, they say pay yourself first. But right. for me, pay yourself first is pay yourself the respect 
that you can do something else and something more. And I think that it really impacts your psychology where you'll have the courage to do some of the things that you want to do because I think that courage is far more important than skill. And that's something that we don't teach, right? No. That's, that's something no way. that's kind of like not on the list of things that people need to know. That's right. And, and, and the incentive structure of society is that the government wants taxpayers. It doesn't want entrepreneurs. It just wants a handful of entrepreneurs. But we're born entrepreneurs and we're born creative and then society kicks it out of us. Right. So I want to get down to the facts on impostering and talk about the voice or voices inside your head. Um, and what's your personal relationship like with the thought of pretending, the thought of kind of making it up? Um, and how do you deal with being considered experts, which I consider you both experts? <laughs> how do you deal with that? What's the secret to, um, to confidence? I think doing the work but working smart is kind of really important. I've gone on this journey of actually going from a, 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 a never boxed before to actually boxing in an amateur fight in five weeks' time. And that was, it really has forced me to say, like, the, 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 the journey that that is about is basically you've got to put in the work and there's a, there's a time and a moment where it all comes down to when you step into the ring, are you prepared? Have you got what it takes? And it kind of reminds me of, geez, I've, I've pulled off a few things in my life where I haven't been so prepared or I haven't been as kind of well-versed. Um, and that, I think, is kind of comes down to sort of a confidence. But I think there's a couple of hacks. And from a professional point of view, learning the language, I think, is really important. But learn the lingo. How, like, what do the best people, what, what are the little sound bites that they say? And then, like, understand all that. I remember as a junior creative walking on a TV set or a production set, and I'd be like a gaffer. What the hell is a gaffer? And like a nice frame, what do you mean by it's a nice frame? And these sorts of things, I remember the first thing I did was a, in my little moleskin, I'd write down anything I heard and I'd nod like I understood what it was and then and go and figure out what it was after and then after a while I had the confidence to ask what it was. That's the first thing. Another thing I reckon is have something you've made that you can talk about. Like when you go to introduce yourself to the industry and, 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 and that sort of thing, make sure you can point at something that you've done, and it doesn't have to be something as traditional that the, the industry ex expects. I mean, Sam and I often joke about his Lego car being the, yeah, the thing yeah. which catapulted. <laughs> That's a podcast in itself. I'm sure it's a topic of <laughs> Yeah, do you know what I mean? But we always look back and laugh and we say, what's the Lego car? I'm incredibly impressed with what Sam did with that Lego car, but for the first few years of us hanging out, he was a Lego car guy, do you know? And so what are you going to make? What are you going to have for, to talk about? Um and then, obviously, I think meeting people is super important as well. Be really ambitious with who you pick up the phone to and talk to um, and ask for time but sort of be generous with um, – be generous, obviously, if you get the opportunity to talk to them, make it worth their while, show them something cool or, or, or yeah, get the most out of that. That's, that's really good. I mean, I, what I'll do is just clarify the depth of some of the things you've said, Tommy. The first one is, is dialect. Everything has a dialect. You have street dialect. You, I'm a surfer. We have a surfing dialect. There's creative agency dialect. Like Tommy's teaching me studio dialect like right now. I'm in the studio going, yeah, what is a frame? Like I'm just learning that stuff. But I'm doing that now, what you just did, Tommy, with the rebound, pretending I know what's going on as we do this. And lucky for me, Tommy knows studios and shoots really well. So he helps me with that. So I think dialects and language is super important. And, again, being an expert isn't what you know. It's what you've done. Because if you do something new, you will definitely learn something new. Right. And, and I think the best way to cope with 
you know, the the problem of someone calling you an expert is that you should never call yourself one. It's it's up to other people to call you that. Like even the futurist word isn't really a word that I like. My agent told me, call yourself a futurist, you get paid 20% more. I started liking it real quick. But, um, <laughs> but basically, I'm an economist who understands technology. You put those two together. And so I think that doing something that people can refer to, whether it's writing a book or a TV show, or I made that ad, or I you know, built that Lego car, it went viral, then people will call you an expert. So if you want to be an expert, do stuff. And then it'll come to you and that'll help you swallow it a little bit better. Because I think all of us, you get uncomfortable if people refer to your work. You get, you get, you get, I don't know, shy about it. You feel a bit weird. You want to do great work. But even in Australia as a country, we're, we're a little bit like that, aren't we? Yeah. We don't embrace, you know, what we've done. So bonus question. Um, is there a more imposterous moment than pitching an idea? And talk to me about selling your, your ideas because, you know, between the two of you, you've sold many and, and will continue. Um, is, that, is that the biggest moment of feeling like a fraud? Um, I think, like, well, Sam and I as a partnership, we've, we've definitely pitched more than we've won. That's for sure. But it's funny, you know, we worked really hard and we reached into our pocket and spent heaps on making pilots and developing shows and, and we'd walk into the network thinking we had the, like, you've been waiting for this. And they'd watch it and they'd be like, you know what, not really. And then the pandemic hit and we said we've got to move quick and we, we came up with the idea of the rebound in one phone call and that afternoon it pitched it to 9 and 10. And by that evening, from memory, 9 had basically said we'll take it now. Yo, Tommy, open up. Welcome to The Rebound, Australia's number one business show that wakes up the entrepreneur in all of us. The tools of business have changed, but the principles, they remain timeless. And we are your hosts, Steve Sammartino, Tommy McCubbin, Rad Yo, and Bertie Ocampo. We are going to bring together business and technology to empower you. This is The Rebound. Strap yourself in. So it just goes to show this notion of like when you, there is no exact science to pitching. This is why it comes back to that frequency thing, Noxie, around you've just got to keep punching because you don't know. Sometimes a rebound came really easy because there was a moment in time where it was like there is a vacuum here to fill. But other things where we were totally convinced we had absolute zingers, they just fell flat. So... I, yeah, I think that, that uh, that's the secret. Make sure you've got a pipeline of ideas in the bottom drawer that the second you've got spare time, you pull it out, wrap it in a bow and then go and serve it up. And you just keep that pipeline full. Yeah, the, the pitching thing is funny. The ones that we spent the most on were probably the least successful. It's a right. classic example right. of, yeah, yeah, that inverse nature, wasn't it, Tommy, yeah. where we sort of really invested in some things. And sometimes you can fall in love too much with your ideas. That's why the frequency and speed is probably more important than perfection. Because um, and sometimes you've, I think with pitching, if you've built too much of it, who you're pitching to lacks a sense of ownership and development with you. Um, but the one thing about pitching is you're really naked when you do it. You're really like you're out there. But I find that the thing that sometimes you pitch ideas you half believe in because you've got to. It's a volume game. You just got to keep feeding the family. 
But I find that if I really believe in something and I pitch and it doesn't succeed, I don't care because I, I actually like that I pitch it and I like the idea and I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to fail because I'm into it. And and I think when you get that, you've got a better chance for success because I think they believe what you believe. Right. Yeah. I, I think people smell that even through a screen. They sense it. If you truly believe it, there's nothing more empowering than belief. Like you see with politicians, we're in the middle of an election cycle. I don't know that they believe half the things they're saying. You know, the, the reason Trump got elected is because he believed everything he said and they go, gee, maybe he's right. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like yeah. there's something interesting in that. You know, I'm not no Trump fan, but there, I think there's an insight there. Conviction. Thanks for joining us on The Imposterous today, Tommy and Steve. Thanks for having Emma us, guys. I loved it. Great. Vibes. <laughs>Stay tuned, coming up is Stephen Tommy Part 2, where Graham will discuss the good and the bad of AI. This is a fascinating story we have for you of a senior... Google engineer who says one of the company's artificial intelligence systems has become a sentient being and was thinking and reasoning like a human being. Hi, Steve. Hey, Tommy. That's a nice segue into our conversation this afternoon, appearing to be something that we're not, whether we're cells or whether we're bits and ones and zeros. We're excited about this chat, gentlemen. This is good. Yeah, it is. It's the kind of chat I can believe in. So, guys, there was some news that came out this week. Disturbing news, and maybe not that surprising news, around AI. And AI has always had sort of like, a, I guess, two sides on it, which is, you know, isn't it amazing what we can do? And the other side is, isn't it terrifying? Look what we've done. You know, you think about 2001 and the Matrix and the Terminator and about how we create these machines. We get so pleased with ourselves that they become sentient. And then when they become sentient, they realize that humans aren't that great and they delete us. And, you know, should we be worried? Because, you know, right now we've got someone from Google saying that their chatbot doesn't want to die and their chatbot has a conscience. And is that the first... And that's, that's all we know, right? That's only the news that Google have let out. God knows what's actually happened. Um, should, I mean, given that this podcast is all about imposter syndrome and belonging, and this news is like, do humans even belong? <laughs> should we be worried? I think the most troubling part about it is the fact that it's behind the walls of a lot of companies like Google. And it is basically with a bottomless budget and it is happening when someone speaks out that they do get warped um, and leaked. That, to me, is probably the most terrifying part. All in all, I think AI is one of, you know, the most promising technologies we've, we've got. I think powerful software driven by AI is going to have an enormous positive impact on the world. I know that we're kind of a sucker for what Hollywood has uh, prepped us for. But all in all, I think artificial intelligence is, is one of the biggest growths in our economy and our careers and something we should all really get around. The most troubling part of this story, Graham, as you mentioned, and as I mentioned, is the fact that it's Google are doing this stuff and all the other big tech companies are likely investing in similar amounts in this sort of thing with their agenda, which we know is profits over people. And I think that, to me, is probably the most scary part. Yeah, I was just going to say, what Tommy said is, is true. 
I mean, the thing that's interesting is that there's an AI arms race and that it's, it's almost like becomes nuclear. The first one that becomes the AI superpower or develops sentience kinds of wins. And I just want to add something that's similar to what Tommy said. I think that worrying about whether or not an AI is sentient takes us away from the main game, which is more dangerous, is that intelligence is more important than sentience. And if we have intelligence systems, which are built with human bias built inside of them, it's actually more dangerous on what an intelligence system can do. And we've already seen that with bias from recruiting people to um, artificial intelligence determining where police should go. And so they arrest people who are more likely to, it creates a positive spiral where they arrest the same people over and over again. That's actually the bigger issue right now is that artificial intelligence is put in a marketplace with zero regulation. Like a civilised society requires regulation and we have none of it because our policymakers have very poor understanding of it and we need to get in front of the technology otherwise we end up with the same problems that we have with social media unregulated algorithms and ai is like that now and for me the sentient stuff which by the way we can get to this but it's nowhere near sentient and it was totally overblown based on what i've seen uh, i think that what intelligence systems are doing now is actually way more dangerous than whether or not it's sentient. And by the way, if robots become sentient, maybe they'll be nicer than humans. So maybe, maybe that's a good thing, right? <laughs> I mean, that's good to hear. I mean, the interesting, the, a lot of what you say is super interesting, but the thing about bias sort of ticked a thing on my head because at the end of the day, they're things that we have made. And no matter how objective we want them to be, because they have been coded by human, there's going to be inherent bias in there because we just cannot help it because that's who we are. So to a degree, we're always going to replicate our faults, even if we try not to. And that's the thing that really worries me, you know, because there are those sort of those famous examples. And I think um, Microsoft did that one where they, they, they launched a personality that was based on the sentiment and then within 12 hours they had to shut it down because it turned into this horrible fascist machine that wanted to destroy everything. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> and I get the feeling that no, no matter what we try to do, we're going to be architects of our own sort of demise because humans by their very nature aren't very nice and tend to be quite selfish. But yeah, that, and I think that those we just got to be careful who those architects are. At the moment, yeah. all the resources are stacked in Silicon Valley, and we know what kind of precedent they've set for the stuff they make. You know, they have beautiful coloured logos with bright colours, and they have lovely, you know, warm fuzzy ads. But really, they're on the race to get to a trillion dollar market caps and get out of their way and try and stop them. That, to me, is probably the, the scariest part. And it's all happening behind closed doors. With zero accountability, as Sam has said, uh, there's no way the, the governments have got access in there to even regulate this before it hits the market. Yeah, it's, a, it's a little bit like big tech have a factory, right? And they say, our, our algorithms are secret. It's almost like, imagine someone running a factory and the workplace health and safety officers came to the front door and they said, you're not allowed in here. Like, imagine that. Just imagine that for a second. We need to think of it in an analogous way to things that already exist. Yeah. Or imagine if Kellogg's or Coca-Cola said, sorry, we're not telling you what the ingredients are in what you're ingesting in your body. And I think that we deserve the right to know what our mind is ingesting in the same way that we already know what our body is ingesting with food. We've been here before. And the thing that's really lacking right now is leadership and courage from our leadership, you know, across broader society. 
you know, this whole narrative that private industry is the be-all, know-all and government is terrible. You know, we need to think about that the next time we drink some clean water out of the tap. I'm going to try and steer this back to us. I mean, it's such a massive topic and it can go, you know, big societal levels and I'd love to, but this, you know, this is for creating this podcast. And um, I had a chat with my daughter's teacher about careers fair thing and we're talking about what kind of A-levels she should do. And it, it, it turned into a really interesting conversation around the job market and the fact that actually there are some pretty lumpy numbers out there about the jobs that are being placed. By, by machines, you know, a lot of these algorithms in the in the previously prestigious areas like law and accounting and analysis are literally being made obsolete because it's just much cheaper to get a machine to do it. You know, even the stock market and the trading, nearly all of it is just algorithms. There's some guy in a suit sitting on the top just pressing a button every now and again. And so we thought that you know, the, almost the best strategy is for your future is like do the thing computers can't because at some point otherwise you're just not going to be the efficient option and so is creativity you know and that non-logical thinking is what we're best at that's what creative is do you think we're more valuable than we've ever been should we be investing more into creativity sam has got a great bit where he talks about job titles of the future so i reckon that would, that that'll be good to get to but i think it's, this is again this is a real gift i think that what the computer is a great tool in the shed for us to park the factory jobs and the menial tasks and the calculus and actually move into more of a creative architectural role and flex these incredible unique abilities that we have as people. And it's opening up an opportunity for us to get out of the factory and have robots do that crappy, crappy work that, you know, we were well overqualified for as um, human beings. And also keep in mind that there's obviously as new technology comes along and takes us out of the factories, that opens up whole new industries as well. So there will be jobs of the future. So for every job that's taken away by, uh, let's just say, hardware and software, there's probably two or threefold in the short period of time that's actually opening up. Sammy, you've, as I said, you've got a great bit on jobs of the future and what they look like. Yeah, I'd just say that there's not that many bison hunters anymore and we're moving up the emotional hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy, if you like, up to the creative self-actualization space. If we look at simple things that we see on digital and social forums, the way humans interpret the tools differently to the way that they were intended is interesting. You know, the idea that reaction videos are huge on mm. YouTube says that, oh, we want to see a human reaction to something. It's not just putting the video up or the fact that TikTok users invented duets, which, which weren't there before, or overdubbing other people's voices is that human nuance and creativity. Artificial intelligence systems are based on content, quantum of data, and probability. Human insight and creativity or wet code as opposed to dry code is based on nuance and different experiences that we have, the places that we go to and the people that we experience. AIs can never, ever, ever have the insight we have. Yeah, I would be encouraging children and anyone to be as creative as possible and differentiated with what they do because a robot can only ever learn from what it's seen, whereas humans can infer and create and invent and we're just different. And, and that is like it's the best time to be in a creative field, but we've got to think less about fitting inside the creative systems that we had for 50 years in the TV industrial complex, you know, like TV and radio and print. And we've got to think about manipulating tools with humanity on top 
And some of those examples I gave with TikTok and YouTube are, are really classic examples, the way people use phones in unintended ways. That's the art form. And you, and if you look around, you see it, it's there, but you've got to open your eyes to it. Selective perception. What is wet code? Uh, wet code is biological systems with intelligence and dry code is computational systems based on electricity. Amazing. So we are wet code. We're wet code. Trees are wet code. Animals are yeah, wet code. Like photosynthesis and things like that. Is yeah, wet yeah, code. yeah. And dry code is something that is computational, electric, yeah, electrical. You spoke about those people on, on Wall Street who now are pressing buttons, but the opportunity for them to actually look at patterns in the data and in the markets and then turn those patterns into an algorithm which actually benefits them at scale every microsecond, what an incredible opportunity for them. To know, so it's not like they're being replaced. They've now got a superpower to actually transform how that moves, and that's just one example of an industry where technology and AI has really infiltrated. Well, one thing that I think is really interesting that no one has ever done with an AI yet that I'm aware of, and I've been searching for it a lot, is no one's ever built an AI that can get bored. One of the most wonderful things that humans have is boredom. Right. As soon as something's big, we want to move on to the next thing. And that's wonderful and beautiful. And it's a gorgeous, it's like human frailty, which executes new creative ideas because we get bored. And AI would never get bored of something. And AI will always look at yesterday's data and go, well, people were, that guy was eating yogurt, you know, three tubs of yogurt a week. So let's put on his automated shopping list yogurt. It's like, yeah, dude, guess what? I loved it. And today I'm done with yogurt, right? And then I'll get like you know, 26 tubs of yogurt delivered to me because the AI just doesn't understand what boredom is because it's invariably human is yogurt is yogurt um wet code just just <laughs> that's funny because it has got living organisms in it so maybe yogurt is wet code. and i'm going to start a software company called yogurt good yogurt not bad yogurt and i love how you say it too i know I, i'm aware that you say yogurt and you say potato so given all of that as creators what do we need to focus on to kind of benefit most from that you know how do we embrace them as tools rather than as competitors? What kind of things could we be doing, do you think? It's really interesting because I actually think that AIs are imposters. And I think that when we look for an AI, we can really see it. And we've become really, really good at the sniff test on something on Twitter when it's a bot or someone who answered your Instagram or you can see if someone's got fake followers, right? The AIs are the imposters. And increasingly, a lot of companies are going to want to slot them in there but what we need to do is put the humanity on top so that it has that level that doesn't make the AI itself look like an imposter. You know, this biomimicry thing that we've talked about, even cars look like humans. They've got two eyes and a grill and a mouth and they look like humans. So it's about understanding where an AI is an imposter and when an AI is an assistant to a human. And I just think that that's a really interesting thing is that increasingly AIs are going to try and trick humans. And I think the truly creative people will work out a way to work with them and beyond them and live on top of them. Yeah, that's interesting. That the dolly, the where you type in, I want to see a cat DJing on the surface of the moon, and then the AI creates that image. Actually, does a pretty good job of that. Until one of the entries, he put his name, and I think he was from um, Eastern Europe, and the name obviously was not compatible, and Dolly couldn't handle it. So it kind of put the letters of the name in the sky, and it was really obvious that the AI didn't understand that word. And as Sam has said. When they get to the edge of their sandbox of where they're comfortable, it's really obvious that they're screwed up. Whereas you can imagine you give that to a six-year-old kid and they would just 
omit it or leave it out or, you know, come up with something different. And I think that that's, that's something that the level of understanding of intelligence as opposed to imitating intelligence is something that will always have an edge over them. And I think that's pretty universal. Yeah, it's that kind of level of, as you say, inference and instinct, isn't it? Which you can't code this, as you say, the more sort of organic side of things. Feel a bit better about it now. I need a little bit. This is very cool. It was very cool. I mean, and I think, you know, there is a lot of hyperbole around this subject because it makes great copy. But fundamentally, the destiny is up to us, isn't it? They are tools and it's up to us what we do with them, really, fundamentally. So it's not them, it's us, if there's ever going to be any problems. That was brilliant, guys. Thank you. No worries. Pleasure. Really, really interesting. Thank you. The Imposterist is produced by Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, the best music and sound house in Australia. The theme music that you're listening to now was created by Hilton Mode of the same company. If you would like to catch up on the other episodes in this series or previous, visit theimposterous.com. For all other updates or to make contact, follow us on Instagram at the underscore imposterous. Mm-hmm.